Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the November podcast is sponsored by Massimo. This is an introduction to Massimo Nasal High Flow Therapy. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients with respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Equipped with an advanced integrated flow generator that delivers consistent flow during inspiration and expiration, soft flow is designed to enhance therapy benefits while eliminating the need to connect to an external source of compressed air. Visit Massimo.com forward slash softflow to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Restoration Care Editor's Commentary Podcast. I'm Rich Branson, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a study of burnout in respiratory therapists during the COVID-19 pandemic. Miller and colleagues surveyed 26 U.S. medical centers to determine the incidents and factors contributing to burnout. The response rate was 37%. Burnout was associated with hours worked per week, hours per week in the ICU, inadequate staffing, inability to complete an assigned workload, more frequent exposure to COVID-19, COVID-19 patients, and a negative view of their leadership. They concluded that burnout was common among respiratory therapists during the pandemic. Good leadership was found to be a protective against burnout. Heather Mason reviews the factors associated with burnout and resilience and details mitigation strategies. Calais et al. addressed the issue of excessive inspiratory effort, potentially leading to patient self-induced lung injury. They evaluated the utility of an expiratory pause maneuver in a bench model to determine the inspiratory muscle pressure. Using a one-second expiratory pause maneuver, they demonstrated good concordance between the change in airway pressure and the muscle pressure, as referenced by the test lung, which was unaffected by the operator. They concluded that the expiratory pause maneuver would be, could be used clinically to monitor inspiratory effort in patients. Plens and Caustic contributed an editorial detailing the advantages of the expiratory pause maneuver and the potential for overestimation of PMUS in certain patients. They urged validation in clinical trials. Vitaka and co-workers evaluated lung function, exercise capacity, and symptoms in subjects recovering from COVID-19 compared to individuals with COPD or interstitial lung disease and exercise-induced desaturation. The subjects underwent assessment of dyspnea, dynamic lung volumes, carbon monoxide diffusion capacity, and six-minute walk test. They reported that COVID-19 patients had a lower forced vital capacity versus those with interstitial lung disease and COPD, walked less than 70% of predicted, and had a six-minute walk distance performance similar to ILD patients. COVID-19 subjects walked less and had more severe leg fatigue and exercise-induced desaturation than individuals with COPD. They concluded that COVID-19 survivors had responses similar to interstitial lung disease and more severe than subjects with COPD. Svensson and Schwartenstein provide an accompanying editorial noting that the contribution of exertional hypoxemia to dyspnea and exercise limitation is still unclear. They suggest that screening COVID-19 survivors for exertional hypoxemia 
both as a treatable characteristic as well as a marker for poor prognosis and additional therapy is warranted. Zing and colleagues performed a retrospective review of over 500 subjects with chest injuries to evaluate the impact of pulmonary contusion on outcomes. Not surprisingly, more severe chest injuries were associated with pulmonary contusion, longer ICU length of stay, and increased duration of mechanical ventilation. They concluded that the presence of pulmonary contusion remains an important factor in the intensity of care. This has been a point of contention recently as changes in trauma care have resulted in far less IV fluid administration, particularly crystalloid. And in the past, we used to say, you know, well, the patient has a pulmonary contusion, it will blossom in 48 hours. Well, that blossoming was usually because patients were being um, over-resuscitated with IV fluids. And we don't see that same kind of um, severity of hypoxemia with the new resuscitation um, paradigms. Bott et al. performed a retrospective analysis of 26 COVID-19 subjects with respect to pulmonary mechanics and ventilator settings in an attempt to identify if subjects could be categorized into phenotypes. The subjects had a median PaO2, FiO2 of 86 millimeters of mercury and a lung compliance of 25 milliliters per centimeter of water pressure with a mortality rate of 61%. Survivors had a mean duration of ventilation of 35 days they reported that high PEEP and elevated D-dimer were associated with increased physiologic dead space without a significant impact on oxygenation, suggesting the potential for microvascular dysfunction. This issue of is COVID-19 ARDS or is it not ARDS um, is complicated. It's a matter of when you make the measurements in the patients. And clearly there are some patients who have a hypercoagulable state and may end up with small blood clots in the lung resulting in high dead space without a similar effect on oxygenation. Miller and colleagues retrospectively reviewed the use of high-frequency jet ventilation in 27 infants with congenital heart disease over a five-year period. Mortality rate was 48% and 22% of subjects went on to transition to ECMO. The main findings were a reduction in PaCO2 and an increase in pH after four to six hours on high-frequency jet ventilation. Lopes et al. performed a cross-sectional study of 117 COVID-19 survivors comparing impulse oscillometry to spirometry and lung ultrasound. More than half the subjects had abnormal IOS findings. They concluded that impulse oscillometry detected changes when spirometry was normal and correlated with findings on ultrasound. Proclau and co-workers retrospectively reviewed the ventilatory ratio in 572 subjects with ventilator liberation. They reported that successful liberation was associated with a ventilatory ratio of less than two, while a ventilatory ratio greater than two was associated with prolonged ventilation. They concluded that the ventilatory ratio might be an additional metric for determining successful liberation from the ventilator. VR is a, essentially a, a simpler, less invasive, complicated method, less complicated method of getting to dead space to tidal volume ratio. Chang et al. evaluated the impact of spontaneous breathing trials on end expiratory lung volumes in subjects with a tracheostomy. In 44 subjects, they compared end expiratory lung volume during a spontaneous breathing trial with and without five centimeters of PEEP. Subjects who experienced a larger change in end expiratory lung volume with five centimeters of PEEP had a higher likelihood of successful liberation. Um, this in part suggests their lung compliance is better. 
They concluded that the change in endospatory lung volume during a 60-minute spontaneous breathing trial might be predictive for successful liberation from mechanical ventilation. Um, this seems like a, a expensive and complicated way of determining if somebody's passing an SBT or not. But the data that we get from um, endospatory lung volume measurements and EIT um, can be very helpful in understanding the pathophysiology of the lung. Narisu and others used ultrasound to measure diaphragmatic movement during cough in mechanically ventilated subjects. They compared cough peak flow to passive cephalic excursion of the diaphragm and 252 subjects following a successful spontaneous breathing trial. They concluded that the passive cephalic excursion of the diaphragm on ultrasonography was significantly associated with cough peak flow and extubation failure after a successful SBT. So again, another way of, of trying to quantify if my patient passes the SBT um, with normal respiratory rate and tidal volume and not desaturation, it's possible that the inability to cough is the reason they failed extubation and have to be re-intubated. DeLorme and coworkers performed a bench study of high-flow nasal cannula devices across a range of flows and ambient temperatures. They measured relative humidity and temperature to determine the absolute humidity. They also evaluated comfort reported by healthy volunteers using high-flow nasal cannula at an absolute humidity of 20 to 40 milligrams of water per liter. Comfort scores were lower at 20 milligrams of water per liter and, high, and higher at the other values. The authors concluded that when used according to manufacturer's recommendations that at normal ambient temperatures, high-flow nasal cannula devices were able to deliver greater than 30 milligrams of water per liter. They recommend that users understand the principles of high-flow nasal cannula device operation under all conditions. Um, this study out of Canada um, was kind of spurred on by the fact that during the pandemic when they were trying to um, change rooms that were not negative pressure rooms into negative pressure rooms by using um, large exhaust fans that the ambient temperature was poorly controlled and they noticed that some heated humidifiers did poorly when the ambient temperature was too high. Johnson et al. reported the results of an online survey of sleep medicine healthcare workers regarding their concerns related to COVID-19. The anonymous survey included responses from 75 physicians and 283 technologists. The major concern identified was virus transmission from CPAP systems. Respondents stated that aerosol precautions were very important, but varied by scenario. The authors concluded that healthcare workers at a high, had a high level of concern about COVID-19 exposure and expressed the importance of mitigation strategies. Kim et al. reviewed adverse drug reactions from the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System for 25 drugs introduced since 2012 for the use in chronic lower respiratory disease. They identified 61,000 adverse drug reaction reports and found that post-marketing reports resembled much of the pre-marketing clinical trials for COPD medications except for fluticasone and fluorate valenitrol, which was different. This kind of follow-up post-marketing surveillance of drugs and devices is much more common in Europe. Um, and again, as, as respiratory therapists, if you have a device that fails, um, the use of the FDA MedWatch um, reporting system is voluntary, but is important for finding problems. Thind and others described the use of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation as a rescue therapy in adults with ARDS. They retrospectively reviewed data from 48 subjects treated with high-frequency oscillation over a decade. 
So again, you're talking about five patients a year. At three hours, subjects had improved oxygenation and increased vasopressor requirements. The mortality rate of the study subjects was 92%. The investigators concluded that high-frequency oscillation as a rescue strategy isn't justified, but that delayed timing of high-frequency oscillation initiation and detrimental hemodynamic effects are among the potential reasons for poor outcomes. Several years ago now, we had two papers about the use of high-frequency oscillation in randomized controlled trials, the Oscillate and the OSCAR trials, one that showed oscillation was associated with greater mortality rate in adults with ARDS, and the other that showed there was no difference. And in the past, we and other journals have published many papers as using high-frequency oscillation for rescue therapy. And now when we publish a paper like this, which you know, there are lots of limitations to reporting your retrospective analysis of data from very few patients using a technique you don't use very often. But while those earlier reports of, oh, we did high-frequency oscillation in 10 patients and there was improved gas exchange, I think it's just as, just as important to report these findings by, again, very respected medical centers with mechanical ventilator experts um, to look at what really happens to these patients after some of these rescue therapies that often get touted but don't often get studied well. Blaine and Ari performed a retrospective review of the academic performance of 33 respiratory care students to determine attributes related to success. They found no differences related to age, sex, class start times, or presence of prior military service. There was a positive correlation between the student performance and select classes and success on the NBRC exam. Huseman and others provide a systematic review on the epidemiology and outcomes of pediatric ARDS following traumatic injury. They found that mortality following post-traumatic ARDS was higher than other causes of ARDS, possibly as a consequence of multi-system organ failure. Often overlooked is ARDS after multiple trauma is also associated with head injury, which of course is associated with a greater mortality. Gupta et al. provided the narrative review of interdisciplinary care to reduce asthma readmissions in safety net hospitals. We appreciate your listening to the Respiratory Care Podcast. We hope you're staying safe as COVID-19 seems to be at least um, diminishing in most parts of the world here in November of 2021. And we wish you the best of luck and great holiday. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.